hi, it's your friend Ellie, and I can't believe it, but we are finally at scene two, both scene one and scene two I worked on simultaneously for an absurd amount of time for a hobby podcast. So I'm so glad I finally get to share it with you. And to be clear, this is Butt Out Baby, a scene-by-scene recap and analysis of the 1987 masterpiece Dirty Dancing, a film that gets a lot of love, but not enough respect. Here's your bird's eye view of this scene. Baby and her family pull up to Kellerman's. It is a sprawling, busy summer resort on a lake. As they exit the car, Baby and her father lecture Baby's sister, Lisa, on what defines a real tragedy after Lisa whines about leaving behind her coral shoes. This conversation is interrupted by Max Kellerman, a longtime patient of Baby's father, therefore making the Hausmans guests of honor. Max orders his staff member, Billy, to unload the family's baggage as he promises that three weeks vacation at Kellerman's will feel like a year. Now for our granular recap, as Baby's voiceover concludes with that was the summer we went to Kellerman's, we see her sightline from the car window, which is a full view of the main lodge, an impressive lengthy stone building from across a big lawn. We have a brief moment to take it all in on this beautiful sunny day before the vantage point changes and the camera places us on the driveway directly in front of the lodge's entrance. Now we watch the family's black Oldsmobile pull up the drive towards the camera. The sound design filters to make it sound like Big Girls Don't Cry is coming out of the car's radio. And as the car approaches, we hear the crunch of gravel and see a bellboy walk along the sidewalk carrying a number of shoeboxes. The camera pans to follow the car as it passes. And recently I found out the actress sitting in the front seat for this split second is not Kelly Bishop who we will know from the rest of the film, but actually an actress named Lynn Lipton. She was originally cast to play Marjorie Hausman, but got sick in the first week of filming. Kelly Bishop had been cast to play Vivian, i.e. the older seductress lady, but due to the new absence, Kelly Bishop was recast as Marge, and the assistant choreographer of the film, Miranda Garrison, filled in as Vivian. When I first read this, I felt quite sad for Lynn Lipton, but when you Google her, you see that she's had a very lengthy career and that she voiced most of the female characters in Thundercats, so that's pretty cool. Back to the scene, the camera pulls up over the side of the car and we get a very brief view of the main lawn at Kellerman's. So there are about six or so people painting on easels facing a group of dancers. Dancers might be an overstatement as they are doing what appears to be walk like an Egyptian and record scratch. I was like, that dance was not invented until the 80s. So I asked my parents and my dad claims that he remembers doing that dance as a little kid in the 50s and he thinks it's just like a little kid dance. But my mom was like, no, I know it's from something specific, but I can't remember what it is. 
And so she did some internet sleuthing while I was eating lunch. And then she was like, I got it. But I asked her to wait because eating while hearing news was too much multitasking for my recovering brain. But also I wanted to record her. I kept having this image of seeing a kid doing it. Like I saw it in a movie or anyway, I found this reference online where it talked about it's in To Kill a Mockingbird. No. Okay. (laughs) My reaction, I sound like I just found out the hottest piece of neighborhood gossip. Oh my God. Did you hear that Mrs. and Mrs. Baumgartner are raising a live bison in their backyard? No. So yes, in To Kill a Mockingbird, the film, Scout sees her brother Jem doing a silly dance, and she asks him what he's doing, and he responds, walking like an Egyptian. The To Kill a Mockingbird movie came out in 1962, so it's not actually anachronistic for the dance to be in a film set in 63. Also, I asked a friend of mine who had just started working at an old folks' home if she could ask some residents if they remembered doing the dance as kids, And she was like, Ellie, I just started on the dementia ward, so no. And also, isn't that song kind of racist? Well, so a song recorded by white Westerners, who as a group do have a history of demonizing African and non-Christian nations, reducing a multi-century culture to a silly dance, is that racist? I mean, yes. But also, are there contemporary Egyptians who think the 1980s Bengal song is kind of hilarious? Judging by the music video YouTube comments, the answer is also yes. But from now on, I'm going to call it the walk like a hieroglyph dance, because really, that's more accurate. Back to our peek at the Kellerman's front lawn. So those guests that are at the easels, I guess, are painting the walk like a hieroglyph dancers. Seems like a bit of a daunting task for a casual summer painting class. Anyway, behind the dancers is a volleyball net. And beyond that, we see two bunkhouses and a glimpse of the lake. The bunkhouse nearest the lake is where the housemans will stay. We cut back to the front entrance of Kellerman's. On the main lodge, there are striped awnings, framing openings to a large covered second story deck. Some stairs lead up to this area. But we're focused on the street level where all the cars are being unloaded by bellboys dressed in white uniform shirts and black slacks. There's clothes racks and lots of shoe boxes. Lisa steps out of the car first and whips off her sunglasses. When did she put on sunglasses? Way off in the background, we hear the social director on the megaphone describing resort activities. Ping pong in the West Arcade. Softball on the East Diamond. All you Sandy Koufaxes, get out there. Shout out to my friend Tom, who I hassled to give me a read of these lines. His bloopers are amazing. Uh, I will maybe put them at the very end. Sandy Koufax was a superstar pitcher for the Dodgers. He was also Jewish, so he definitely would have been an athlete of note for the guests at Kellerman's. I said in the first episode that for most of my life I didn't know any Jewish stereotypes, but that's not exactly true because I remembered a single one that came from this joke in the film Airplane. 
Smile, relax, and enjoy your flight. Would you like something to read? Do you have anything light? Oh, how about this leaflet, Famous Jewish Sports Legends? My guess would be that Sandy Koufax was on that leaflet. Also, while working on this episode, my dad was getting rid of all his old baseball cards and asked me if I wanted any. And what do you know, on the very top of the stack was Sandy Koufax. I was like, I'll take that one. And when I explained it was a dirty dancing thing, he just didn't ask any follow-up questions. Complimentary dance lessons in the gazebo, in the ballroom starting in 10 minutes. We don't get to find out what's happening in the ballroom in 10 minutes because Lisa says, Oh my God, look at that. And we see a close-up of a bellboy escorting 10 boxes of shoes. Lisa leans down to her mom, who's still sitting in the car with the window open, and she whines, I should have brought those coral shoes. You said I was taking too much. So Marjorie, aka Marge, I'll just start using the parents' names, even though we haven't learned them yet. So Marge follows Lisa's gaze, her mouth hanging a bit open in what looks like an expression of guilt. Then she says to Lisa, Well, sweetheart, you brought 10 pairs. And Lisa, that dude was holding 10 pairs, I counted. Jake Hausman gets out of the car and takes off his sunglasses. Why does everyone all of a sudden have sunglasses? As the camera follows him, we overhear Lisa complain. But the coral shoes match that dress. As established, I don't know fashion very well, and I wasn't totally confident I was picturing the color coral accurately, so I googled coral shoes and in the process came across this blog titled, What to Wear with Coral Shoes. I clicked on it, and either it is a translation or it's written by a bot. And for funsies, here's my Windows narrator giving you a selection of this article. Every girl like a true lady must have a pair of heels. However, all the girl in the wardrobe must be present. With what to wear with coral shoes, this will be discussed further. This will be discussed further. Actually, no, it won't. Okay, so Jake rounds the car with a swagger, explaining... This is not a tragedy. A tragedy is three men trapped in a mine or police dogs used in Birmingham. Baby, who is now leaning on the hood of the car, chimes in with... Monks burning themselves in protest. Lisa narrows her eyes and spits out... Spit out, baby. I.e. the namesake of this podcast. I'll talk about this baby and her dad versus Lisa dynamic more in the dramatic argument section. But for now, I'm going to peel apart these three tragic events that Baby and her father reference by sharing their historical and social significance. She's like the wind through my tree. She rides the night next to me. Okay, the first event is the most straightforward. Three men trapped in a mine. I asked my parents about this and they couldn't recall a specific event. My mom's exact words were, there's been a lot of men trapped in mines in my lifetime. After looking around, I believe this refers to what's called the Shepton Mine Disaster. What happened is that after a cave-in, three coal miners were trapped in a Pennsylvania mine in August 1963. According to an article in the Minnesota Star Tribune, and Wikipedia for that matter, the story captivated the country. 
Two of the men were eventually rescued, one they never found. The two that survived, and I quote, found themselves entombed in a small chamber no more than two feet wide and ten feet long. For the first six days, they had no contact with the outside. They survived by drinking stagnant, foul mine water, and they kept warm by breathing on each other's necks and rubbing each other's legs. Wow. Now, the cave-in happened on August 13th, and we learn a bit later in this scene that the Hausmans are staying at Kellerman's for three weeks. We know that they leave at the end of Labor Day weekend. So if they leave on the 2nd of September, which is the Tuesday after Labor Day in 1963, then if the day they arrive is August 13th, it would add up to three weeks. So the Hausmans arrived on the exact day of the cave-in, but it doesn't show up in the New York Times until the 14th. Also, I looked it up and the article on the 14th is very short because they assume all the men are dead. So it's a bit out of time for Jake to make this comment, but we'll forgive them for this as only an intense weirdo would realize the timing is off by two days. Before I move on, I wanted to share an interesting tidbit I found about this story. On August 24th, the New York Times published an article titled Old Mine Superstition Delays Rescuers Briefly. And here's what it said. When rescuers told Dave Fellon, one of the trapped miners, that timber was being sent down so they could reinforce their tiny chamber, he replied, I want white oak, fresh cut from the bush. Work was halted at the surface while men went into the surrounding woods to fulfill his request. Clyde McHammer, president of the Independent Miners and Associates, said that the rescuers had plenty of two-day-old oak on hand, but had to bow to Mr. Felon's superstition. He's an old miner, Mr. McHammer said, and just wanted to smell fresh-cut oak. Police dogs used in Birmingham. Now that one might conjure up an image for you. It's a famous photo, after all, captured by Bill Hudson. It's a shot of a black high school student grabbed by a white cop and sunglasses while a police dog lunges. And if you're interested in more of the specifics of that photo and who was in it, there is a good episode of revisionist history that goes into that photo. The photo was top of the fold in the New York Times on May 4th, 1963. The headline read, Violence Explodes at Racial Protest in Alabama. It was not just the New York Times that covered this, of course. As Kevin Boyle, the historian, writes, The next morning, photos of the dogs and the hoses were plastered across the front pages of newspapers that a few weeks before were condemning the campaign. And it even made international news there was an Indian newspaper that declared to turn high-pressure hoses on peaceful demonstrators is another act of calculated barbarity which besmirches Alabama. And then they go on to say, if that state had any reputation left to be besmirched at all. Ouch. Anyways, we can definitely picture Baby and Jake reading this coverage. So my guess is going into this, I probably know a bit more than the average Canadian about the U.S. civil rights era. As you know, my parents are American, but also my dad introduced me to Malcolm X when I was young, so I'd written papers on him in high school and MLK. But I was definitely not comfortable enough to talk about this history without doing some more research. Oh my god, it was 
a lot because like so much history, once you start digging, everything just raises more questions. <laughs> and I really can only explain this process I went through via a single frame from the X-Files opening credits. If you're also a 90s kid, you know this iconic title sequence with UFOs, some Mulder and Scully freeze frame action, but there's this one moment where this like white blobbed out silhouette falls deep into an oversized photocopy of a blue handprint. It's a bit abstract, though I'm sure there's like 9,000 fan interpretation of what that frame means. But I always thought of it as symbolizing Mulder falling into the abyss of his obsessions. And I kept thinking about this image when close friends would ask me, oh, where are you at with the Dirty Dancing podcast these days? And for literal months, I would respond with, well, uh -huh, I'm still learning about Jim Crow. I know it's only one sentence in the entire film, but and then I just fall into a blue handprint. This happened because originally I was going to try and summarize all of the history of Jim Crow post-slavery leading up to this moment in Birmingham. Finally, I realized that was not reasonable. But if you're interested in hearing some of my favorite stories I learned from all of this history, then you'll definitely want to listen to the Dirty Debrief for this scene. But for now, let me tell you about what was going on in Birmingham, Alabama, leading up to the spring of 1963, and also how we can contextualize Baby and her father's reaction to this news. So the Birmingham campaign, like any other civil rights direct actions, came out of years of struggle and its success was not remotely guaranteed. So this is something I didn't realize. This was a full seven years after Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, even longer since Brown v. Board of Education. A lot happened since those events, including the Freedom Rides which we will get into later in a different scene of this film. One of the things Martin Luther King Jr. was up to in this seven-year period was a campaign in Albany, Georgia. You maybe haven't heard of the Albany movement. I sure had not. And I imagine that is because it was largely considered a failure, which is called survivorship bias. And the podcast You Are Not So Smart did a great episode on this phenomenon like years ago, but I still think about it. Anyway, one of the many theories as to why Albany failed was due to the town's police chief, Terry Pritchett, who made pains to appear as polite as possible. As one historian put it, Albany's, in quotes, gentle apartheid had not aroused the public. Well, the police commissioner in Birmingham was not a man known for his restraint. Eugene Connor, a.k.a. Bull Connor, was a popular radio personality turned politician. Despite being vehemently racist, he was, at least for a very long time, adored for what seemed like his common folk honesty. A lot of this stuff is going to sound familiar. After serving a term for the Democrats in the Alabama House of Reps, he ran for Birmingham's Commissioner of Public Safety, a position that gave him administrative authority over the police. As an example of his reign, in 1961, when the Freedom Rides stopped in Birmingham, Bull Connor sent word to the KKK that they had 15 to 20 minutes to basically beat the shit out of the activists before the police would intervene. 
Spike Lee did a documentary in the 90s about the Birmingham church bombing that happens in the fall of 1963. That was an event I alluded to in the last scene as a turning point that occurs just after the events of the film. Anyway, in the documentary, everyone had a story about Bull Connor. Journalist Howell Raines described him as the walking id and hellish side of Birmingham. But as one of the fathers of the girls who died in the bombing noted, a man like Bull could not exist without nods from the status quo. Only that January, George Wallace was sworn in as governor of Alabama. This was a man, of course, famous for his inauguration speech, including the infamous decree, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So MLK and his allies have their Batman villain in Bull Connor, and the plan is to boycott downtown vendors, do lunch counter sit-ins, lead marches, and plan to put thousands of people in jail. But there is a large alliance of Birmingham citizens that felt like reform was on the horizon and a radical assault against the establishment would be a huge mistake. Because some white leaders and businessmen had grown tired of the city's brutal segregation image, now nicknamed Bombingham, and they schemed to get Bull Connor out of office. They tried to eliminate his power by adapting a new form of city governance, which is a whole interesting story in itself. Maybe I'll talk about in the debrief. But Connor just responded by running for mayor himself. The reformers ran their own candidate against him, who was basically just a politer bigot named Albert Boutwell. As historian Diane McWhorter puts it, on the grounds of charisma alone, 58-year-old Albert Boutwell ought to have been disqualified from running. It... <laughs> His presentation screaming, fishy handshake, which, lol, but she's not done yet. He donned a chef's hat during backyard barbecues, and for a hobby, he bowled badly. <laughs> Beltwell spent the late 50s pushing through an act that neutralized the Brown v. Board of Education decision in, in Alabama and called the Civil Rights Act of 1957 monstrous. Clearly, Boutwell is nothing to get excited about, but you know how this goes. He is by far the lesser of two evils. And when this much is at stake, people didn't want a radical movement to sway more followers over to Bull Connor. After a lot of persuasion from many corners, the MLK-led demonstrations got pushed back and pushed back until after the mayoral election was done, which takes a very long time, and Bull Connor does lose, but guess what? He doesn't accept the loss, refuses to leave office, and files a suit. So it's a clusterfuck in City Hall, but also the movement is having a really hard time recruiting volunteers. Martin Luther King Jr. himself was at a low point in his public image after his retreat from Albany, he complained he'd never received such negative press as he had in the North at this time. King had a meeting with more than 100 Black Birmingham businessmen. They were all critical of the movement. Meanwhile, the office of Governor Wallace was drafting a bill to raise maximum appeal bond in misdemeanor cases from 300 to 2,500, applicable only in Birmingham, conveniently, and Bull Connor obtained an injunction banning protest. This was a tactic that was used both in Montgomery and Albany. So the movement was running out of money and could no longer assure volunteers that they would be provided bail 
which meant that the poorest of them might end up in jail for six months instead of six days. This put King in a real dilemma as he needed to choose between going to jail himself in order to raise awareness or leave to go on the road to raise money as he was one of the few effective fundraisers. Both options were heavily debated by his advisors, and he eventually retreated to his hotel bedroom to think on it. And then historian Taylor Branch describes, When King stepped back into the other room a few minutes later, he wore a work shirt, blue jeans that were crisply new and rolled up at the cuffs, and a new pair of clodhopper walking shoes. It was a startling sight, as some of those in the room had never seen King wear anything but a dark business suit. I don't know what will happen, he said. I don't know where the money will come from, but I have to make a faith act. So he went to jail, and they put him in solitary confinement. It was a risky move, because he didn't have the same clout, and initially the press was not paying that much attention. And now they didn't have any money. <laughs> But guess who came to the rescue? None other than Harry Belafonte. He raised $50,000 for more bail bonds and said he could raise more. If you can't quite place the name Harry Belafonte, he's the singer that did the Banana Boat song. And when I was visiting friends in Glasgow, they took me to the gay bar district. And the first place we went to had karaoke. And as we were leaving, someone started singing Jump in the Line by Harry Belafonte, which is a song I knew a little bit, but never heard anyone sing it at karaoke. Then we crossed the street to another gay bar, and as we walked in, they also had karaoke, and someone was singing Jump in the Line. Rock your body in time, okay, I believe you. So all of this gave me quite a fondness for Harry Belafonte. So King is in solitary confinement, and thank God for Harry because now they have some money, but still everyone is critiquing the shit out of the movement. But there is one article that tips King over the edge. It's an open letter headlined, White clergymen urge local Negroes to withdraw from demonstrations. King was pissed. These were churchmen. They were liberals. They of everyone should be supporting him. And this is where we get the famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And if you know it, you know it's powerful. I just have to read one part of it. I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Wow, I mean, these practices of the white moderate is exactly what Baby is going to struggle with in the film, as she realizes that her community's support of equality vanishes if it threatens their comfort. I mean, everyone has probably had some regretful moments like this. I know I have. I've witnessed a few incidents of harassment on public transit that in hindsight, I really wish I'd intervened on, but I didn't because basically it just would have been too uncomfortable. It reminds me of a Lindy West quote from her book, The Witches Are Coming, where she says, the problem is people weaseling out of growth. We are addicted to not being inconvenienced by reality, even in mundane circumstances. 
Okay, so we have this powerful letter from MLK that is still celebrated today. At the time, did those white liberal clergymen read it and see the error of their ways? Did the media publish it? No, and no, it only became famous in hindsight. What made the difference were the children. As the movement struggled to amass adult volunteers, the idea of getting students involved was raised. But there was a lot of debate about how young was too young. James Bevel, who was one of the younger leaders, was like, if they're old enough to be a church member, they're old enough to march. So they recruited leaders from high schools and elementary schools, and a popular radio DJ made announcements about the big party on Thursday in Stanley Ingram Park, and everyone knew what he meant about that. And it worked. Thursday, May 2nd, hundreds of children streamed out of the church to be arrested. Police officers tried to intimidate the kids, but they said they knew what they were doing. As a tiny girl climbed into a paddy wagon, a reporter called out for her age, and she yelled back that she was six. This first day actually sounded pretty jubilant. Apparently, there was an elderly woman who was just watching from the sidelines, but then felt moved enough to run along the arrest line, ecstatically shouting, sing children, sing. And this continued on the next day. As the jails were overflowing, the city and police tried a new tactic to discourage demonstrations, fire hoses. They used these devices called monitor guns, which forced the water from two hoses through a single nozzle. Now, the sight of this began to sway some of the town moderates. The city's leading black businessman looked out his window while he was on the phone and said, they've turned the fire hoses on a little black girl and they're rolling that girl right down the middle of the street. And we know what happens next. The idea that thousands of children were marching for their rights was incredibly novel and pair that with images of them being blasted by water hoses and attacked by dogs. It was just too irresistible for the media. Let's think again about Jake and Baby looking at these photos. Of course they would have been horrified. I'm sure the racial segregation of the South was abhorrent to them, and rightfully so. But again, in their community, that would have been a pretty safe ideal to express openly. And this is where my research paused for a very long time. <laughs> I knew that some of the white establishment in Birmingham that resisted change included Jewish people. I also knew there were some strong Jewish allies in the movement, but I was surprised to learn that Jewish people only comprise less than 3% of Americans across the country. So New York State is really an anomaly. It's possible Baby and Lisa grew up not even feeling like a minority. And so I just really wanted to speak with a Jewish person from the South who knew this history. And wow, blessedly, I found the exact correct person to talk to in author T.K. Thorne. The demonstrations had been primarily against the Jewish-owned department stores in downtown. And a lot of people don't understand that that was not because of a strained relationship between the two groups, but because the Black community shopped in those department stores. And so their boycott of those stores was felt economically, and it was a point where they had some power in leveraging. T.K. Thorne is the author of Behind the Magic Curtain, Secrets, Spies, and the Unsung White Allies of Birmingham's Civil Rights Days. And she didn't set out to write this book. She was approached by four white men who lived in Birmingham during this era, 
and felt like there were stories that hadn't been told. One of them had read some of her writing and thought she would be perfect for the job. She had no idea what she was in for and ended up spending eight years on the book. I saw one reviewer call it a deeply rooted insider's examination, and I think that that is totally accurate. It's this really complicated and honest account of the spectrum of actions and inactions by the white residents of Birmingham, and it's totally fascinating. And if TK wasn't already the perfect interviewee for this topic, I also, when searching through her blog, found a comment by her cousin casually mentioning that he'd done some genealogy work and found out that they are both related to Jennifer Grey. So before we recorded the interview, TK rewatched Dirty Dancing, and I was, of course, curious to know what she thought. I was surprised at how relevant it still felt, especially the whole abortion thing, yeah. uh, which has <laughs> raised its head again in society and the fact that women are still, or again, whatever, whichever way, having to deal with that. And so it felt very relevant and very coming of age. And I really identified with baby because I was kind of a tomboy myself and not interested in a lot of girly stuff like her sister was. Did you see any family resemblance in Jennifer Grey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. I would never, ever have thought that on my own. It would never have occurred to me because her father changed his name uh, from Katz. But I, I love the character and I love that she didn't look like a Hollywood beauty, but she was beautiful. Yeah. You know, I think maybe this time when I watched it, as opposed to when I was younger, I saw her beauty shining out, inner and outer. And I was also surprised at how hot the movie still is. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Swayze. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's a very sensual movie. We are a bit of a ways away from the sensual scenes. So let's get back to Birmingham. As I knew TK grew up in Alabama, I wanted to know if she had any awareness of the civil rights movement when she was a kid. I asked that a lot, and yeah. it's really interesting because I was not, I think, nine years old in 1963. Uh, I lived in Montgomery, by the way, so oh. I wasn't in Birmingham as a child. Of course, Montgomery has its own history. Yeah. That's the, where the, the bus boycott that started the civil rights movement. And my parents were a lot like babies in that they were very attuned to the racial issues. However, they didn't really talk to me about it. And similarly, they didn't talk about the Holocaust, which I have learned is sort of a phenomenon throughout the South that the parents did not really communicate about what had happened. I do remember sitting in front of the television when a newscast came on about, it looked like riots in Birmingham. So I asked my mother, what's going on? Which in reflection means I had no clue. So what happened at 15, that, that sort of awareness of the Holocaust and everything? I met a distant cousin who had been to Israel and she was talking and and apparently my ignorance showed, and she said, do you even know about the Holocaust? And I said, my answer was, well, which one? 
Wow. Very interesting in retrospect, but I was totally embarrassed when I realized that what they were talking about and how significant it was to, you know, world history and to to Jews in particular. Well, because one of my questions to you was going to be like about being Jewish in the South. Did you really identify with the label Jewish when you were young or not? Does your family, did your community? We were, it was such a small community. The only things that I can remember experiencing that were shocked to me was one, I had a friend who wanted to invite me to lunch at the country club in Montgomery. And she told me she couldn't because I was Jewish. And I'm like, what? And she was kind of stunned herself, which is a good thing. And the other thing was in uh, junior high school, I remember after a, an auditorium event, the whole school had participated because right after there was a crowd coming out of the auditorium and somebody bumped into me and said kike in my ear. And I'd never heard that word before. And I went home and asked what it was. And when I heard that it was a pejorative about being Jewish, I was stunned. And part of my shock was realizing that even though I didn't run around thinking of myself as Jewish, other people did. And somehow they knew that. It's always interesting hearing those stories because especially if you grew up in an environment that is really racialized that you're that you forget that it's not natural like that it's not natural that we do this <laughs> it's a human a real human invention that we do stuff like this so something that came up when i was reading a bit about this the scottsboro case affecting anti-semitism in the south it was part of the hidden background that my parents probably knew about and i had no clue about if you're American, you've maybe at least heard the name Scottsboro Boys. They were nine young black men accused of raping two white women on a freight train in 1931, Alabama. It's suspected now that the two women, traveling hobos themselves, were talked into making the accusation in exchange for not being charged with vagrancy. The International Communist Party took an interest in the case and made a propaganda spectacle out of it, which is why it's so well known. How this is relevant to our story, besides the twisted history of racism and patriarchy being relevant to all stories, of course, is that the second lawyer to take on the defense of the accused was a dapper Jewish lawyer from New York City named Samuel Leibovitz. The county prosecutor in Alabama claimed Leibovitz was part of the Jewish communist Negro conspiracy to overtake the South and is quoted as saying, show them that Alabama justice cannot be bought and sold with Jew money from New York. T.K. Thorne explained to me how this fear of communism and its ties to Jewish outsiders was particularly potent in Birmingham. In Birmingham was was actually the center of the Communist Party's effort. Uh, they had headquarters there for the Southeast with the goal of strengthening the unions there because Birmingham was a mining town mm-hmm. owned by, you know, out-of-state mostly financial interests, and they were dead set <laughs> on not having unions. And there, there was some really... Uh, violence that took place and a lot of tension. And so 
the Jews became linked with the communists because many of the people that came down to help fight in the union fights were Jewish and communists. Mm -hmm. So you have the like anti-Semitism from non-Jewish people about New York Jews being communists and all this kind of stuff. But I imagine there was also a result of that was some Jewish people in Birmingham in the South who had some kind of status wanting to distance themselves from the so-called New York Jew. Is that something that played into things? Yes. Yes, it did. And let me start with Montgomery. Montgomery was a much smaller Jewish community than Birmingham. And in the South, because of the racial prejudice, it was real important to be considered white. And so I think the community just really put their head down. Plus, it was not that long since the Holocaust. If you think about it, the time between 9-11 and now, today, in 2022, the time between that is greater than the time of the Holocaust to 1963. So that gives you a little bit of perspective because if you lived through 9-11, you know, that's something you you don't forget. All the emotions of it are still there. And that is, my parents' generation was was there. That was something they protected me from, I realize. So that was hanging over them. They saw this as their safe place. and They didn't want to rock the boat. And that was true in Birmingham also. But I think because it was a bigger community, they came out a little more. It happened on a spectrum, as I talk about. TK's book paints a really vivid portrait of how impossible it was to make what we would deem now as the morally correct choice in all circumstances at this time. And I don't see that as giving people a pass then or now to not try and correct unfair systems. I think more so it's a recognition that change involves a lot of people trying and screwing up. One thing left that I wanted to make sure we talked about was the invasion of the rabbis. I wonder if you could tell that story. This was in 1963 in Birmingham, and the Jewish community had played several roles quietly in the negotiations between the two factions, or the there are more than two, but the Martin Luther King and Fred Shuttlesworth SCLC demonstrations. So this had been going on all spring, and it, it had grown. And the number of people that had come out and spilled into the streets, people were quite afraid of what would happen. And those fears were not ill-founded because a few months later, terrible riots did break out after the bombing of the church. But this was prior to that. And quiet negotiations have been going on between these two groups with the support of the business community, but not the support of the government the commissioners that were still in power at that time. So the Jewish community was holding their breath, so to speak, along with everybody else, about the outcome of these very sensitive negotiations that were going on. And it just so happened at that time that there were a cadre of young rabbis 
decided that they needed to make a statement for the Jewish community, which is also totally understandable. Without any warning, they decided to come down to Birmingham and just show their support for the civil rights marches and the demonstrations that were going on. I guess to show the world, you know, where the Jewish community was, because they felt that the Jews in Birmingham were not speaking up loud enough. And so they came, they came in the middle of the night. And fortunately, I guess, someone had told on them and called someone they knew in the Birmingham community. What I was told when I was researching this book is that it is tradition if a rabbi is coming to a community that they notify the community and let them know. This was uh, totally outside the bounds of normal, traditional courtesy, if you will. And so they arrived and there was a contingent of Birmingham Jewish community that met them, including Abe Berkowitz, who was one of the most outstanding supporters and enemies, if you will, of Bull Connor. Mm-hmm. to try to convince them this was not the time and place for this. Uh, and some of them listened and some of them did not. And they ended up participating in some church services. This is a nice scene in the book I just wanted to share about the rabbis who stayed on for the service at New Pilgrim Baptist Church. They marched down the aisle in full regalia, enthusiastically greeted and welcomed by the black congregates. The rabbis taught the congregation a song in Hebrew, and the meeting adjourned with everyone exiting the church, together singing, We Shall Overcome. I think the news kind of kept it quiet at the time, and it did not disrupt what happened uh, in terms of the negotiations. But it was, it was really a difficult chapter for me to write about, because as you said, I could understand both sides and how they felt. You know, on the one hand, I totally agreed that's a a good thing to come down and show your support like that. On the other hand, I also understood the resentment of the Birmingham Jewish community that these Northerners were going to come down here and do this and then leave and let the consequences to the community fall where they may. The last thing I want to play you from this wonderful interview TK was so generous to do with me was about her reflections on growing up in the South and this attitude towards Northern influence and just, you know, thinking about the judgments of people like Baby and her family. Northern interference (laughs) was well understood. And, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, how I grew up with this romanticized version of the South in the Civil War. And of course, you know, Gone with the Wind played into that. And I had the vague feeling that the the Civil War was sort of like a big football game. And we lost, but we should have won. And we could have won. The youth of the day, it was like, you know, a giant pep rally kind of feeling. And it really was not overtly about race for the young people. It was about who won and who lost and pride in being a Southerner. Mm -hmm. And that was still a very, very strong feeling for my my younger days and teenage days. And it really wasn't until I began to study history. I mean, even in my 20s, I went to work in the Birmingham Police Department of all places, feeling like those days were over and that we needed to move forward. 
And mm-hmm. there's there's still, you know, there are a lot of people that feel that way, that why are we dwelling on the past? But I think uh, our recent time has illustrated that we have to dwell on the past. T.K. Thorne's book is called Behind the Magic Curtain, Secrets, Spies, and the Unsung White Allies of Birmingham's Civil Rights Days. I recommend this book not just to history buffs, but particularly journalists, actually. We didn't get into it in the interview, but a huge part of the book follows a young white journalist in Birmingham. And I think it's the most honest account I've come across about the function and power of a newsroom. I will link to TK's website in the show notes. themselves in protest. This photo is maybe even more famous than the Birmingham one. It's a black and white shot of a man sitting ramrod straight, eyes closed, seemingly impervious to the fact that his body is engulfed in flames. I've been familiar with this image since I was a teenager as Rage Against the Machine used it for their self-titled album. I'll probably talk more about that in the Dirty Debrief. Here's what I can tell you about this photo. At the time, the president of South Vietnam was a man named Ingo Dinh Diem. Most commentators I've come across just refer to him by his last name, Diem, spelled D-I-E-M. I've heard it also pronounced Z-M. I'm just going to say Diem. Vietnam had been split into two countries, North and South, after nearly a century of French occupation had been ended by the Viet Minh which was a communist national independence coalition formed by the famous Ho Chi Minh, whose name will come up later in the film. This split wasn't supposed to be permanent, but the U.S. and its allies feared a national election would mean the entire country would fall into the hands of the communists, so a national election was never held. The country stayed split, and Diem became the president of the South. In the words of a children's book I took out of the library, Diem claimed to, quote, want a good government in South Vietnam with fair elections, but he was not an honest man. He was a dictator and was closely advised by his apparently widely loathed brother and his wife. As Diem wasn't married, Madame Nu was the default first lady. There's a lot to be said about all of these people, but... We spent a lot of time with Birmingham. I think we should move on. South Vietnam was a largely Buddhist country, and Diem and his family were Catholic. Diem and his brother were very paranoid about any challenges to their power, and as a result, banned Buddhist religious symbols. This led to a violent clash between police and Buddhist protesters, leaving nine dead. The horror of killing the nine Buddhists is what inspired the famous self-immolation. On June 11, 1963, 73-year-old Thich Quan Duke sat down in his saffron robe, assumed the lotus position as another monk poured gasoline over his head. We know what happened next. 
The Associate Press photographer Malcolm Brown had been tipped off by the monks and as such was present and was able to capture the famous image. In the words of historian Max Boots, rarely had a single photograph had such a cataclysing effect. I imagine Baby seeing this photo and it being the first crack in her confidence in American imperialism, which my dad talked a bit about last episode. I think reading about world events in the newspaper, talking about them is probably a bonding activity for Jake and Baby, and also a validation for their identities as liberal intellectuals, which I will talk more about in the dramatic argument. But first, if you can believe it, we still have more of the recap. After Lisa says the title of this podcast, we cut to Wayne Knight's character, aka the actor who played Newman in Seinfeld. The character's name is actually Stan, though we don't ever hear it, and he is the social director. Right now, he's on the lawn near the hieroglyph dancers. Christy's going to describe what he's wearing, um, but you'll hear her refer to him as Newman the entire time because Christy hasn't <laughs> actually watched the movie, besides the clips I keep force-feeding her. So Newman is wearing a maroon, fairly loose-fitting cardigan. He has his sleeves kind of rolled up. On the cardigan is a machine-embroidered patch that says Kellerman's, and it's in like a stylized script in bright yellow. And then Newman is also wearing a hat, which kind of looks like a five-panel hat, which is just a different construction than maybe like a typical baseball hat. In the same color with the same patch, also the maroon and the yellow. And I would say that this color scheme is like very collegiate, does kind of give like school uniform vibes, but Newman is an adult man. Underneath the cardigan, he's wearing a white button-up shirt, and then it looks like he also has a t-shirt underneath the button-up shirt. Newman is also wearing glasses. His glasses are plastic frames. They're transparent, brown. They kind of are a little bit reminiscent of the Ray-Ban Clubmaster. Stan is holding a clipboard and yelling into a microphone. We got horseshoes on the south lawn in 15 minutes. We got Splish Splash, the water class, down by the lake. We got the still life art class. At this point, the camera goes back to Baby, who has turned around and is now watching Stan. We got volleyball and croquet. Then we cut back to Stan, and he says a line that in all the many, many times I've seen this film, I've never friggin' understood what he says. Can you decipher that? This line is not in the screenplay. So I had to turn to the internet and the consensus is, drum roll, and for you older folks, we got sacks. Sacks, like S-A-C-K-S. What? Here is me explaining it to my mom and trying to get her take. And for you older folks, we got sacks. Sacks? S-A-C-K-S. Oh, I wonder if that's like uh, potato sack racing. Potato sacks does seem like the most likely sack reference, but I still didn't get what the joke was. Is the joke that potato sacks would be too lively of a game for old people? That seems weirdly cruel. 
So I looked online and there was only one single place on the whole World Wide Web where people were debating the meaning of this line. And it was a language forum where you can see the mother tongue of each user. So Russian copy and pasted the line and said, Sax, I guess it was a joke, but what did he mean by that? Thanks. A Tamil speaker replied that maybe he meant sacks to spread on the ground, to sit on, or maybe a sack race. The Russian speaker is like, oh, sack race, like sex race. The Tamil speaker is like, no, I don't think it's a pun. I meant, and then hyperlinks to a Wikipedia article on sack races, but then finishes by saying, considering they are elderly, I'm leaning towards it being sacks to sit on. The Russian is like, what do you mean sacks to sit on? I can't find this in a dictionary. Dirty Dancing, look how much confusion you've caused for me and these two people. Though it's not over yet, because an English speaker from the US chimes in and is like, maybe it's referring to a sack toss. You know, quote, it's similar to horseshoes, but the throwing objects is even lighter, which might make it appropriate for older folks. And if you're like, WTF, that makes no sense. Stop misleading these ESL learners. Yet another English-speaking American, this one a moderator from Indiana called Sparky Malarkey, comes in and is like, yeah, that's gotta be it, because the name cornhole is a new term, and so people wouldn't have used it in the 1960s. Then a Texan comes in all cheekily and is like, I think there's another reason they avoided the word cornhole and posts a definition that says cornhole is synonymous with do anal intercourse. The Indiana chap does not appreciate this interjection and doubles down on the argument that cornhole is historically inaccurate. And they say it would be like a movie about the Civil War saying Lincoln wants to free the African-Americans. Yes, Sparky Malarkey, exactly like that. This lively discussion is capped off with a final opinion by a user from England, read by Oliver Whitehead, as I felt like this really deserved a proper British accent. I feel fairly confident that it's a static sort of game without an exact British equivalent, except that as small children, we had bean bags to throw as part of learning to throw and catch balls, probably the most important element of British education after the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. They were small bags loosely filled with dried beans, cheap, easy to catch, and relatively harmless if you or the windows got hit by one. I'm even more confident that it would not refer to Hessian sacks. For one thing, these elderly people who can't run at all most likely couldn't sit on the ground either, or if they could get down, they wouldn't be able to get up again. More to the point, they would expect to be provided with chairs and would regard sitting on the ground as very infra-dig below their dignity. I have the impression that the people who went to these summer resorts in the Catskill Mountains were well-off middle-class city dwellers. If you're going to sit on the ground for a picnic, perhaps, you'd have a rug, not a dirty, rough old sack. A rug? <laughs> Needless to say, I was galaxy-brained after reading this. And finally, a couple days later, while I was having dinner with my parents, I told my dad the alleged joke. And then he had the same response as baby. He was sort of like, I really want, want, want. I'm like, wait a minute. You know what the joke is? What is the joke? And here we go, folks. Prepare to be underwhelmed. Potato sack racing is an old-fashioned game, so it would be appropriate for the old people. 
Oh my god. Now we cut to an older, white, mostly bald gentleman wearing a suit and striding towards the Hausmans. He greets Baby's dad with, Doc! Accompanying him is a young staff member. Dad responds, Max! In greeting, the two shake hands. Max says, Well, Doc, after all these years, I finally got you up on my mountain. <laughs> so this is obviously Max Kellerman, the owner of Kellerman's. Max Kellerman is wearing a gray suit, both jacket and pants. It looks like he has notched lapels, which is the most common type of lapel for a men's suit. And it looks like it's a two-button suit. And as you're supposed to wear it, he has the top button buttoned. The bottom button is unbuttoned. It's a very fine weave, but up close it has like a little tiny bit of texture. He is wearing a white buttoned up shirt underneath. His tie is black. It's like a pretty skinny tie and he looks to have like a little silver tie clip. The most interesting thing about Max Kellerman's outfit, I would say, is his pocket square. So he has light gray pocket square and it's folded in such a way it's called three peaks this style of folding a pocket square but basically it's like two little corners sticking out another corner in the middle there's three points basically coming out of his pocket jake laughs and says how's the blood pressure max and something i never noticed until doing this close viewing is that while this exchange is going on billy is staring at Lisa like a big creep. Billy is wearing a zip-up jacket. It's like maroon, but less red than Newman's sweater. It's like closer to brown. And you can see that it's different because on this jacket is the same Kellerman's patch in the maroon and yellow with the script that is on Newman's hat and cardigan. But this jacket, it looks like a cotton kind of twill finish and then the collar i don't know what this type of collar is called it's like a square collar there's no points it's just like both edges are squared and then under this jacket he's wearing what i would assume is a ringer tee it's a white t-shirt with a contrasting band at the neck and i'm assuming also at the sleeves especially because billy is walking up with max kellerman who's in this this suit Billy's jacket is definitely much more casual. This jacket looks more like workwear. Back to Max, who says, I want you girls to know if it were not for this man, I'd be standing here dead. I always found this line confusing as a child because it was delivered in such an earnest way. So I was like, but if you were dead, you couldn't be standing. And in a later scene, there's another Max Kellerman line that to this day, I don't know if he's being sarcastic or not. We'll get to that later. Next, Max Kellerman snaps at his staff. Billy, get the bags. I used to find this really rude, but now that I've noticed Billy creeping on Lisa, I'm kind of fine with him being yelled at. Billy takes Jake's car key and says, right away, Doc, right away. Billy makes his way to the trunk, followed by Baby, and we overhear Max say, I kept the best cabin for you and your beautiful girls. Billy opens the trunk and Baby helps him unload. When Billy notices, he grins and says, hey, thanks a lot, you want a job here? And then we get a close-up of Baby's smiling face, and you're like, oh, okay, is this the love interest? It's not. 
back to Max Kellerman, who's standing very close to Jake as he explains. There's a merengue class in the gazebo in the next few minutes. The greatest teacher. Then he looks over at the women in the group. Used to be a rocket. We will talk about the Rockettes in the next scene. Jake has his arm around Marjorie's shoulder as she says, it's his first real vacation in six years, Max. Take it easy. And I agree, frankly, if I just arrived at my destination, I don't want to be pressured to dance in a gazebo or a gazebo or a gazebo, as we pronounce it in Canada. Max responds, three weeks here and it'll feel like a year. No truer words have ever been spoken. Changes from the original screenplay. So Kellerman's was not the name of the resort in the 1985 screenplay. It was called Cosner's Corners which is a bit of a mouthful, so it makes sense that they changed it. As far as I can tell, both Cosner and Kellerman are German surnames, but not necessarily Jewish. In the 1985 screenplay, we meet Johnny right away, actually, but I will tell you about that in a later episode. As the houseman's car pulls up, the song that we hear is Da Do Run Run by The Crystals. And Lisa's dialogue about the shoes and Jake and Baby's retorts about tragedies is pretty much exactly the same. A plus writing there. But then we cut to a moment that ends up in a later scene in the film, which is Max Kellerman giving a speech to his staff. So we'll talk about that more in scene four. And after that, we don't cut back to the Hausmans. We actually cut to a still life class on the porch of the main building. Bergstein writes that the guests at the art class are wearing hip huggers, cabana suits, etc. So Hawaii had become a state only a few years prior to 1963. And my parents were telling me about how all sort of stereotypical things associated with the state were extremely popular at the time, like hula dancing and probably cabana suits. So in this scene in the screenplay, we meet Vivian, who is one of the guests painting, as the script describes, an almost lascivious rendition of fruit. She's dabbing lovingly at the purplish grapes. It is borderline pornography. I can imagine a director reading that being like, that is no. And yeah, this, of course, is Vivian, who we meet later in the movie as the middle-aged wife who seduces Johnny. Okay, I wrote that line in the script before I discovered that Miranda Garrison, who plays Vivian, was 36 when she shot the movie, which means she's a year younger than me. Does that mean I'm middle-aged? So in the 1985 screenplay, Vivian sees the housemans unloading their car and rushes over to say hi. She's clearly pretty close friends with Marjorie. Seeing this side of her, I think, makes her a lot more sympathetic than she ends up being portrayed in the film. It's at this point in the screenplay that Max Kellerman arrives to greet Jake. The exchange is much shorter than in the film. He leads the family to their cabin while Billy carries all the luggage and Baby walks behind him. Billy tells Baby a very long joke, which makes Baby laugh. And Billy says, I'm training to be a borscht belt comedian. It's not easy. I'm Italian. Borscht belt was a colloquial term for these summer resorts in the Catskills Mountains. 
the 1985 screenplay is very explicit about the Jewishness of the resort and Baby's family, juxtaposed with Johnny and other side characters like Billy, who are Catholic. We get actually two more short scenes that are not included in the movie, but I will talk about those in the dramatic argument. There are a lot of little moments in this scene that do important work. All the cars unloaded by the staff show us that there's wealth to the people who visit Kellerman's. The activities on the lawn are tame and mainstream. In the interaction with Mr. Kellerman, we understand that Jake is a doctor and a person of standing in his community, and therefore his family are guests of note. We see that Kellerman is condescending to some of his staff. We learn that someone like Baby helping to unload luggage is unusual. But I do think the most important exchange of the scene is Lisa complaining about leaving her shoes behind and Jake and Baby scolding her on what constitutes a real tragedy. So I'm going to say that the dramatic argument is Jake Hausman is the moral authority of his family and Baby is his second in command. At first, I thought the most notable thing about this exchange was the sexist implication that fashion is not worthy enough to get upset about. This kind of attitude is typical in our culture. If girls and women are obsessed with something, it's more likely to be seen as trivial rather than just like an interest that can be just as problematic or inspiring as being obsessed with sports. I do this shit too because I also live in our sexist culture. Case in point, I always thought boy band fandom was really dumb, but there's been a lot of incredible writing and commentary with the rise of K-pop explaining what those fandoms do for people and represent, and yeah, I was wrong. Anyway, Dirty Dancing being the masterpiece that it is, I think it's commenting on more than surface-level gender politics. Because think about it, if Baby instead had an older brother who whined about Kellerman's not having cable, interfering with his ability to watch the big game, don't you think Jake and Baby would mock him just like they mocked Lisa? I think they would. So there's some intellectual elitism going on here. Jake and Baby are well-read and this gives them moral authority. Eleanor Bergstein has noted in interviews before that Trying to make the world better is a classic Jewish value. She has described the guests at Grossinger's, which is the resort she based Kellerman's off, as being very concerned to be ethically and morally committed. The resort gave a eulogy when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and they had candlelight vigils in honor of civil rights workers who were killed. I was listening to Jennifer Gray talk on Jamie Lee Curtis's podcast, and she was explaining that her grandparents were Ukrainian Jewish immigrants who moved to Brooklyn in the 30s, didn't speak the language, but they became pharmacists and a result sort of the de facto neighborhood doctors. And when she was explaining this, she sort of mused that, that she felt that there was some idolatry in Jewish culture of the doctor. So we have Jake Hausman here on a pretty high mantle, and he's guiding Baby in his footsteps. 
I said that Jake is the moral authority rather than just authority or intellectual authority, because I do think there's some liberalism that Bergstein is pointing to in this exchange. Jake not only is well-educated, but he knows which issues are important enough to take moral stances on. It's not like he's schooling Lisa on packing with vigilance or the versatility of Mary Jane's. He's instructing Lisa on a values hierarchy with human welfare at the very top. This is important for us to see so early on in the film because it shows that Baby has good reason to look up to her father. And so it will be all the more devastating when she discovers that he's capable of hypocrisy. If it ever seems like I'm being hard on Jake or Baby, it's because I see them in myself. If Lisa was my sister, I would have 1000% made fun of her. I was a snarky tomboy who only liked girly things in secret. Which brings me to the scenes in the original screenplay I said I would bring up here. In the screenplay, after all the events of the scene, we get a couple moments with the parents and the daughters unpacking in their rooms. First, we have a moment in the parents' cabin where Jake is unpacking his golf shoes and Marge is pulling out an article titled, Annette Funicello Dares to be Different. Annette was a famous mouseketeer. And the action line reads, Marjorie, an intelligent, college-educated woman, believes the way to her daughter's hearts is to speak the language of teen scene, dig, and teen life. Also, you uh, better believe I have some copies of Teen Scene from the 1960s. Follow the show's Instagram for those gems. Then in the screenplay, we go to the sister's cabin and the article gets pushed under the door. Lisa and Baby roll their eyes at each other. Okay, this is fascinating and very conveniently supports my argument. I say conveniently because I forgot about this moment until I just pulled out the screenplay to review the scene after this one. Anyway, Bergstein here is showing us the gender differences between the parents. They're both intelligent and educated, but Marge sees her role as more emotional than Jake, and it's more of a lateral exchange. Marge is willing to meet her girls where they're at rather than dispensing knowledge from on high. This kind of mom character is a cliche at this point and is usually mocked as a tryhard. Amy Poehler did a really fun send-up of this in Mean Girls. I'm not a normal mom, I'm a cool mom. But geez, I mean, wouldn't you rather a parent that at least tries to understand the next generation? Okay, so the next little scene, the moment I did remember, is in the sister's room. The radio is playing a song called Not, <laughs> called Not Too Young to Get Married. Um, I'm going to do a deep dive on the music in a later episode, but Bergstein in the screenplay wants you to know that this music is, quote, not from the streets. It's up-tempo, perky, unsexy. Again, she's preparing us for the contrast for the music in the staff quarters. So Lisa turns up the radio because she's super vanilla and Baby is in the bathroom. And here's what I wanted to talk about. Bergstein's action line says, Baby would never admit she cares about beauty, nor do anything so obvious as buying hair rollers. As a result, she is desperately and secretly trying to wave her hair with magic markers fastened with paper clips. It's fucking hard. Lisa then opens the bathroom door, and once she sees what Baby is doing, she bursts out laughing. First off, I do see why this didn't make the film. It's visually very confusing. Like, is Baby just bad at doing her hair, and that's what Lisa's laughing about? This is more of a moment for a novel, I think, than a film. 
But anyways, I think it would be a really useful moment to read as an actor or director. It suggests that Baby's identity and status within her family is in part because she doesn't outwardly buy into feminine ideals such as beauty and fashion. I was talking about this scene to my friend Juliana, and she sent me this devastating quote by Bonnie Burstow from a book called Radical Feminist Therapy. And the quote is, often father and daughter look down on mother together. And of course, for baby, it's both mom and sister. Father and daughter exchange meaningful glances when she misses a point. They agree that she is not bright as they are, cannot reason as they do. This collusion does not save the daughter from the mother's fate. Yikes. I mean, isn't that the dramatic argument of life? Collusion will not save you. This is a big part of Baby's journey. At the beginning of the film, her father shares the moral high ground with her. But once she steps outside that respectable, intellectual, chaste daughter box, it doesn't matter that she's accumulated those years of collusion. So perhaps a more accurate dramatic argument is Jake Hausman is the moral authority of this family and Baby is his second in command for now. Thank you so much for listening to this and listening to the first scene. Both of these episodes, I spent so much of my recovery thinking and working about, so it feels like a real milestone for me to finally get these out. Scene three will be the first episode I work on entirely in the new year, and it will come out quicker and it will be less dense, I promise. If you have any thoughts about this scene, email me. And I will read them in the Dirty Debrief. Ellie at buttoutbaby.com. Follow the show's Instagram. And catch you next time.